many have noted that these little letters that Christy referred to, 2nd and 3rd John, are very short, number one, but they're also personal. We talked about pastoral letters being Paul particularly was writing to a church, but he's writing to Timothy or Titus, but the intent of that letter was to be shared. These are a little different. Um, they're a little more personal, and the brevity of them makes it quite intriguing uh, to know what would be some of the backstory behind why John is writing these short letters. Um, one commentator says, these are notes snatched from the everyday correspondence of an apostle. I like that. You think about if you've been around people in office, uh, legislators, elected officials, judges, they keep everything. Everything is written and codified. It's put on computers. But think of a post-it. You don't necessarily hang on to a post-it. This would be like a post. This is a small message he's sending, and we get the glimpse of seeing what a, an apostle put. Oh, by the way, uh, J. Vernon McGee, some of you know that name. Uh, he said, you must recall that John is the apostle who writes of the family of God. Paul writes of the church of God, and Peter writes of the government of God. I thought that was also a fair distinction. Well, these three letters I'm putting together, it's called Facets of Fellowship. Because they all have to do with fellowship, but they're very nuanced and very different when you look at them in some detail. We looked at 1 John last time, which is an interesting text that talks about we want you to have fellowship with the apostles and then with God the Father. And you, if you were here last or two weeks ago and we talked about this, that strikes me because you would think he would say, we want to have fellowship with the Father and us. But it's reversed very intentionally because this body that we call the New Testament, the Gospels and all the letters, 27 books, are the apostolic teachings about Jesus. This gives us all the information we need to know about the Messiah that the Old Testament saints looked forward to, the devout Jews of old looked forward to. So this is God's very word. He spoke it. It has no error. It is transmitted across time. We have so many translations uh, in our English tongue. It's very easy to read. And this is given to us to explain the person and work of Jesus Christ. So if you don't accept what the apostles are saying, John is saying, you can't know God. That's quite a statement. You can't know about this God unless you understand who this Jesus is. And the way you're going to know who this Jesus is is by what God the Father had his apostles put to pen, put to paper, uh, what we now have in our text in our hand. Uh, so this fellowship begins with the apostles who gave the message, then gives it with the body of Christ, the, the, the Father. And then Second John really is also about fellowship, but it's, it's forbidding fellowship with the wrong people. He's going to re, revisit the idea of false teachers, which we talked about in First John. So there's going to be fellowship with God's people. Don't have fellowship with those who are false teachers, and then 3 John is going to be, uh, as Christy mentioned, a positive and negative example about two people. And we'll look at those in some detail. So we have this fellowship with the believers and the Father. We have people to avoid fellowship with. And this last one sort of encompasses the whole thing, the right kind of fellowship and the right way it's illustrated. So we're looking at two today, 2nd and 3rd John. Let me try to package these together because they're very short books. You can read them in probably less than five minutes. It just taking your time. But this chosen lady, we don't know much about her. It's, it's a lot of speculation to spend time on it. Uh, John is commending the love that's going on uh, as an example to other people. 
And so this is the necessary ingredient for the Christian life. You have to have this fellowship of love with one another for one another. But he has this stern warning about these false teachers. Um, in the ancient letter between 1st and 3rd John is an interesting bridge. And it does give us this inside glimpse into what's going on personally with these relationships. Not too much, but it tells us about this church, about this author, and he's going to refer to himself as the elder, which we'll also show you in a moment. Um, essentially, it's a, it's a letter of encouragement, it's a letter of exhortation, and a letter of admonition. And in a culture that does not like to be corrected, that does not like to be fact-checked, uh, this is counterculture today, just like it was when John wrote it. Uh, let's say probably the first century, late first century. Um, I'm going to show you a chart that Ken Wilkinson and, and um, Ken Boa and Bruce Wilkinson put together in that book we've talked about again and again. I've truncated it for space and content, but he's just doing a comparison and contrast with Second and Third John. So you've got love mentioned four times, two times. You've got beloved mentioned four, uh, four times in Third John. You have truth mentioned about the same number of times, the phrase, the elder whom I love in truth in both letters. Um, you've got this joyful report uh, from teachers he's dispatched, but then you have a warning about hospitality with enemies, and then you have an encouragement to have the right kind of hospitality. So there's a lot of argument. They, they fit together pretty tightly. Some argue it might have been written at the same time or very close to the same time. There's a commendation that's followed by a rebuke in 2 John, and there's a commendation followed by a rebuke in 3 John. There is a commendation about bad doctrine, and then there's a commendation about uh, bad uh, about bad conduct. So they go back and forth a little bit. Just as a, as a visual, sometimes helps me to look at okay, what's happening with these two letters side by side. Let me read Second John verses seven and eight. This I think is the theme or main idea that he's writing in this letter. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. We address this issue of Antichrist because it's important in John's language and it's important for us to understand what it does and doesn't mean. The simple way to understand Antichrist the way he's using it is a false teacher. Not the Antichrist, I've mentioned this many, many times, had we lived in the mid-1940s and you were a born-again, Bible-believing, evangelical, fundamental kind of Christian, you would have probably thought Hitler was the Antichrist. He's killing Jews, he's going after world domination, world power, it's a world war. Uh, you, you would be silly not to think that. So it, we're not always talking about one person. And what John does in these letters is talk about the Antichrist being anyone that encompasses or teaches false teaching that's against the, the gospel that they have been clear. What's insightful, or to me what's intriguing in verse 8, watch yourself that you don't lose what we've accomplished. So he's taking some ownership in what he's done to help them, but this has to do with rewards. Um, another area for your study and something we may get into at some point in time, there are more than one, there's more than one judgment in the New Testament, and there's all kinds of rewards that are discussed in the New Testament that most Christians are very confused about, or they don't know what they mean, and they kind of walk away from them. But what he's saying here is, if you don't stay faithful, you're not going to lose your salvation, but you will suffer loss. 
you will lose reward. And so that audience would have heard that very clearly. If you get sucked into this false teaching, if you get deceived by this culture, uh, you're going to lose you know, some of the gains you've had. And that's one of the reasons he's writing. Watch yourself. Verses 10 and 11, he continues, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him. Do not receive him into your house. And do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Now again, taken on the surface, that seems really harsh. Um, if someone comes in the congregation and is an antichrist, is a false teacher, you don't have anything to do with them. Now some of you, don't have to raise hands, might have grown up in a church background that was separatistic. And you, you don't associate with certain people. And there, along Christianity, there's this huge gap. I have friends that I love, 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 love dearly, but I have become too liberal for them over the years. And it's just, that's the continuum. They don't hate me, they just don't associate with me anymore. I guess maybe they don't like me. But uh, it, it's just different. And you might have people that have gone too far and address you, well, I don't know if, we, that's not what this is about. What this is about is understanding in the Old Testament economy, shalom wasn't just, hey, how you doing? Hey, how are you? This was, a, this was a greeting of fellowship and communal relationship. If you were a Jew, you lived in a hostile world. And if you've traveled abroad and maybe you've been gone a long time, three, four weeks, and you're in a country perhaps that's not very, um, let's say, kind to the ugly American, and you might have experienced some jaundice and hate in your interactions, and you meet someone who speaks English, you're best friends. I mean, you start talking about old times. It's very interesting, that connection. Keep that emotion in mind when you think of first century Jews who were coming to Christ. They didn't have a lot of friends. So this idea of shalom, this idea of peace be with you, uh, grace and peace to you, were not just cliche greetings. Uh, I've been uh, teasing a lot of my family and friends. That we begin sentences with the word hey all the time here in Middle Tennessee. We say hey. Jesus came and he said, hey guys. No, he never said hey. It's just some kind of transition word that's worked its way into our language. I don't know why. Somebody who knows syntax can explain it to me. But hey, so let's go back to this. Hey, what this passage says. This isn't casual. It isn't colloquial. It's very intentional. And it's hard when we read this, don't receive somebody like this. Don't hang around with them. So we have to understand a little bit more about what he's saying. We'll get to that in a moment. Third John is going to remind us that truth, love, mission, and hospitality are all part of this letter. Uh, James Sweeney writes, the purpose of Third John is a brisk note of encouragement to a trusted and well-grounded colleague. So again, it's a, like a little handwritten note that wasn't perhaps the same intent we would look at these other letters. Oh, Romans, of course, that's a doctrinal treatise we'd study all our life. These are postcards, some people call them, but they're still giving us insight in this personal connection that the apostle has with people that he names. Um, we also have this, this person, Gaius, and we'll talk about him again in a few moments. Let me read chapter 3, uh, uh, excuse me, John, 3 John, verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil is not, even, is not seen God. And again, these sound so hard 
until you understand we're not talking about nuances. We're not talking about separatism because I don't use the King James, for example. We're talking about error. We're talking about heresy. And again, that's hard to define, but that's what this backdrop is about. Let me talk about two lessons, and I'll try to expand both these ideas that we see in 2 and 3 John. The first one is fellowship is not friendship with the world. Fellowship is one of these religious words like glory and holy and blessed. They mean everything, therefore they mean nothing. A fellowship is an alliance. Fellowship is more than a treaty or a pact or an ally in battle. Fellowship is an intimate relationship. In fact, we're told not to be unequally yoked, right? When Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? And these passages are saying, if you're hanging around an unbeliever, first of all, we'll talk about knowing why, but be careful. Because the lowest common denominator is going to impact you. You're going to get pulled into this. And how many of us know story after story of some fine young Christian high school kid that goes off to a, a very liberal university and they take a couple of philosophy courses or a religion, religion class on world religion, and they come back the first year and they don't believe what mom and dad taught them? It's almost cliche. Um, we used to talk about learning to be critical thinkers. No, your children are getting indoctrinated. That's just how the world's working. Sorry if you don't like my opinion. That's the fact. Fact check me on it. Uh, they're indoctrinating them. And if you have tenure, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to move people out that hold certain ideals. And so your children are tossed into this, and then all of a sudden they, they don't believe anything. You put a child who's impressionable by a bunch of people with doctors in front of their names, it doesn't take long for them to question what they believe. Fellowship is not friendship with the world. That doesn't mean you go, don't go to a secular college. It just means you keep your head screwed on and you keep your spiritual life lined up with the Lord and the Word and other, other Christians. Um, the passage is saying that if you have no agreement, I don't want to sound unkind, but you don't hang around these people for your best friends. Now, that does not mean we're not friends with them. And this is where my separatistic Christian friends would have a different view. They would separate so much from them, same church, same fellowships, same community groups, same travel. They have nothing to do with those that don't know Christ. And I'm not saying that's a wrong way. It just doesn't seem to align with what the rest of Scripture teaches. Matthew 7, 4, 15 warns against being around false prophets. Titus 3.10 says we're to admonish a factious man. But in, in, in John, uh, 2 John 9 and 10, we're, we're not to even greet these people, not to talk to them, because we'll get pulled in, and they will impact us and affect us. Um, I hope you and I ha both have non-Christian friends. I shared with you a few weeks ago about one of my friends that did not know the Lord, and he passed away very suddenly with a heart attack. And I beat myself up, like perhaps you have done. Now, I did share the gospel with him many times. We had good collegial arguments and I'm hoping at some point in there he put it all together. But the last conversation we had, he was far from the kingdom. So I don't know, you know what happened before he had the heart attack the next day and passed away. But it grieves me. But I also think that, you know, I'm supposed to have non-Christian friends. I'm supposed to be in the world, not of the world. I'm supposed to do the work of the evangelist. That doesn't mean I stand on the corner with a big Bible and scream at people with a bullhorn. 
But it does mean in my sphere of influence, and you and yours, you have friends that don't know the Lord. And if you're nice to these people, and you love these people, and you're kind to them, and you care about them, and you share a little booklet or a CD or whatever you like, and say, hey, you might write like this article. Send them a link, and just start the conversation. You know what I've found, and I bet you have too, most of my conversations with non-Christian friends have come about because they know I'm a Christian. And something finally happens, or they have a question, and they know, ah, I know you're that preacher boy, but that's a tee-up for me. That's wonderful. Because I'm not trying to hide this. I mean, you've got it so much easier than me. Trust me on this. It, it's worse than being you know, in a multi-level marketing scheme. No, no offense intended. You know, I, I'm an insurance guy. Hey, let's have lunch. You know, I, I, don't, I don't want to buy insurance from you. We don't do that much anymore, but that was old days. They know I'm a preacher. Man, put the earphones on, hide the book, you know. Remember Robert Morgan was here a few months back, and he was sitting on the plane. Why is it we always have these plane conversations with people? I, it's sort of Western weird to me, but he, and we all feel the same way. That's why I sit by Cindy. So uh, <laughs> don't have to talk to anybody. The window's there. She's there. Well, I'm good. But he says, you know, I'm sitting there going, I know I should talk to this guy. I don't want. He's got this big Bible out there. He's reading this big old Bible, and he goes, Lord just kept beating him up, and he says, Okay, and he says, look, I'm a Baptist pastor. Do you have any questions? <laughs> Worst transition sentence I've ever heard in my life. He leads the guy to Christ. So I don't understand all I know, but I do know that we're more afraid of the what if than we are just taking the risk, and if they know you're a Christian, they just might have a question or two, and you might have a conversation with them. To be in and of the world is the balance First Corinthians 5, 9, I wrote you in my letter, Paul says, not to associate with immoral people. I did not mean with the immoral people of this world, or, or the covetous, or swindlers, or idolaters, for then you would have to go out of this world. I mean, it's pretty common sense, right? So what is, what is John saying here? This isn't your fellowship. That's why this word's important. These can be friends. You can be loving and friendly to those who don't know Christ. But your core need to be people who love you, who think similarly, who are going in the same direction, who hopefully are growing in Christ. Those are the ones you want to rub shoulders with. God is not being unkind about being separatistic. He's saying don't associate with false teaching that's going to corrupt your thinking and other people as well. It's interesting. When I do certain things publicly, I, I had someone go after me a while back because I had a guest on the podcast, and they were very upset because this person wasn't down the line theologically like me. And I said, well, I wasn't talking to that person about those issues. I know that. But otherwise, I just have four people to talk to, right? I mean, because we're not going to grant everything when it comes to the finer points of theology. But that's my job when I'm controlling the conversation on the podcast to be sure we land the plane in the right place. I interviewed a gentleman this week that holds to replacement theology. You know what that means? Israel and the church, so the, the church has replaced Israel. A lot of people believe that. I think that's flat wrong. Well, I'm not going to pick a fight with him, and he knew before he talked to me, because he knows my background, he knows Michael doesn't believe in that. Cool. We're not going to fight over that issue. He's an expert in other areas. So this idea of having a relationship with Christians is a, is a complicated thing. We make it too complicated. We make it so complicated. But you do need to know where those lines and boundaries are. Go, look, just because I had this person over for dinner doesn't mean I drink the Kool-Aid, right? 
So that's where we give each other a little bit of, of freedom. Fellowship is an alliance, it's sharing, it's a common faith, it's an intimate relationship that I have with God and another believer. That's why it's more than just friendship with the world. Cindy and I just came back from D.C. Thanks, Wayne, for teaching last week. We went up there and spent four or five days. And we were, in that chapter of our life, we were there when our children were similar ages with these other friends, and we grew up together. We were there almost 12 years, right, 12 years. And those friendships are now 20-some years in length, 24 or more. It's not that they're the best people in the universe. We just were with them a long time. And we all went through thick and thin with health issues, with our children, challenges, raising kids, which still goes on for some of these folks, um, marriages that these kids, the, the, the other ones are not married yet, and parents worry about that. Um, but we got together, one, one of Cindy's friends, is her best friend, and um, Barbara, and this woman has had MS for 30-some years. She lives in chronic pain, and she has these windows of time. And sometimes we go and we can't see her because she's too, too, too much pain. Um, maybe we get an hour with her. We had four hours with Barbara and Spencer. And I, it was like I left my socks somewhere. I, my shoes came off a long time ago, and I lost my socks. It was like a holy four hours talking to this couple. They know the Lord. They share Christ with people. They've had kids that have broken their hearts. All the, uh, just like all of us, right? Everybody said amen. If you have more than one child, you're going to have a problem child. Another cheery, mighty, sermon. Just <laughs> Write it down. You'll feel better when it happens. Um, there's a fellowship there that's unbelievable. And we had several meetings like that with friends so, you know, for many, many years. That's what fellowship is. You just pick up where you are. You pray for one another. There's sincerity. There's trust. We didn't even turn on the TV. We didn't talk about movies. We talked about books. We talked about what we're learning. We talked about what we're going to do in life. Second lesson, abiding in truth maintains brotherly love. I didn't say that very well. Uh, forgive me, you can improve on it. But the way I maintain a loving relationship is I've got to be moored to the truth. That's what he's saying. This is, a, this is a little bit analytical or maybe kind of higher math to think about what, what John is saying here. But this is a really insightful point. If I'm going to stay in the truth, abide is a big Johannine word. He uses it in the Gospels, and he uses it in all the epistles. It's a big word, one of those religious words. It doesn't just mean I agree with. There's a connection here. And what John is saying is you abide in the truth. How often do I talk about a biblical mooring? You've got to have a mooring to the Scripture. You've got to think biblically and theologically. Don't let the world teach you theology. You've got to have a biblical mooring. It's going crazy. If you'd have told me 10 years ago how crazy the Christian community would be in this country, I would not have believed how crazy it has become. On the one hand, it's terrifying. On the other hand, it's exciting. Because truth is always true. Christians shouldn't be afraid. We shouldn't, we shouldn't cower back and be unwilling to talk. We should be kind. We should be courageous. And the only way you're going to keep a loving relationship, and here he's talking about believers primarily, is if you abide in the truth. If you separate love from truth, what do you have? Arguments, fights, arrogance, hubris, I'm right, you're wrong, you're wrong, I'm right. All these kind of things we go round and round about. So he's going to use this positive and negative example to explain this in 3 John. Gaius 
was the one who's walking in truth. And it causes John to write a letter, I have no greater joy than this, than my children walk in the truth. Any parent can apply that wonderfully, can we not? When your son or daughter loves the Lord, and he or she brings home a Christian boyfriend, girlfriend, and they're making good decisions. I remember both of my older daughters shamed me at different times in the way they approached things as Christian girls than I did as their father. I can remember both of them kind of, Dad, that's not what you need to do. And they were right, and I was wrong. I'm the overprotecting black and white father. If it looks like, you know, hammer it, you know. Now, no, Dad. And both of them have a much better way with people sometimes, well, a lot of times than I do. This is great love when you see your children walk in truth. On the other hand, Diotrephes is the negative example, and he, he loves to be first. It's an interesting text. He loves to be first. I mean, just stop right there. What do we say about a person who wants to be first all the time? Bite your tongue. He loves to be first. He unjustly accused others with wicked words. Anybody here been slandered or misrepresented besides me? Oh, you're boring. Come on. Of course you have. Doesn't feel good, does it? You don't like it. If you're abiding in truth, you can be loving. If you're not abiding in truth, you're going to get angry. And that happens to me sometimes. I get ticked at people's responses. Um, Diotrephes is the negative example. He intimidates, he was arrogant, he was selfish. So you have Gaius or Diotrephes. These are two examples. And this little tiny postcard he's telling him, exemplary to, if you want to keep brotherly love, you have to be anchored to the truth. Don't let the world teach you theology. Keep that rope short, tied to your scripture, so you don't get too far away. You know, when you raise children, we're, we're in such a complicated time right now, because uh, the school systems, and I'm not a conspiracy theory guy. I th- think I'm actually becoming more of a conspirator. But um, w- when you see what some educational influences are doing to our children, what they're telling them, you can get pretty upset. You can be pretty angry. Uh, you know, my children were young. Um, I was judging them all the time. Now, today that sounds terrible. But whenever you correct somebody, you're judging them. When you leave this parking lot and there's a stop sign out there or a stoplight, you've been judged. And the moral law just told you stop, whether you like it or not, because it affects other things, right? The idea of a speed limit, in theory, is if you go this speed, you're more likely to be safe. You won't hurt other people. If you've read The Abolition of Man, a little 43-page book that you can read again and again and again and again and again and again. C.S. Lewis had his finger on the pulse of 2021. And he talks about the Tao, or the Tao, T-A-O. And basically he says, in every culture, there are moral laws that are hardwired. That'd be the way I would paraphrase him. And the illustration he uses is when someone cuts in line. How do you feel when somebody cuts in line? I was coming back from the airport the other day, and you know when you get on, I always get the numbers 40 and 440 mixed up, but you know that one bottleneck where you're waiting to get on, that'd be 440, right? And you just kind of go along. And you know, what do people do? Always. The last minute, they come up in front of you and they pull in. And I'm always so happy, aren't you? <laughs> and the person I did to last week, they weren't happy with me either. <laughs> it's something hardwired. That's wrong. Don't lose your common sense, men and women. It's okay to tell your son or daughter, that's wrong, honey. That's wrong. 
And that's where I think Christians have lost their courage. They don't want to get in trouble with the culture, their neighbor, the community. You can smile when you say it. That sometimes helps. When our kids were little, and I know our children were far worse than yours, um, but they would argue about the chore list in our house was so easy. I mean, you and I had chores that were chores, right? I mean, they were chores, right? We, we, we sweated from our brow like Adam. That was our chore. Our children's chore were cleaning the table off after dinner, emptying the garbage. Uh, before Saturday morning, uh, before noon, they had to have done their laundry and their sheets and made their bed. They could do it Thursday, Friday, it didn't matter. But Saturday noon, if it wasn't done, you're home. You know when they started thinking about it? 11.59 on Saturday morning. And there's a big fight every time. And so it's joyful. And so you tell these kids over and over and over, look, this is not just about you doing this. This is a family. There's six people in this house. And when the table's done, mom's done most of the preparation. Dad's the loaf. He just comes home. But you guys need to clear the table and put the dishwasher. And, you not, and so they would fight about it, whose day it was. We get the chart on the wall. You're the chart on the refrigerator. This is your day for trash. You know, that works for about a week. And so you're always training. You're always training. And finally, we, we learned this, this one technique that worked maybe for a week. It was, uh, they were all arguing. I said, stop, 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 stop. Um, do you know the word help? When somebody says, I need help, when you say, Mom, I need help with my math, or Dad, I need help with my vocabulary, I would say, sure. Mom says, sure. When someone says, I need help, you say, you're going to help them. So what we're going to say from now on when dinner's over is, Mom, how can I help? And I had them practice it. I would say, I want you to smile. Mom, I want, how can I help? <laughs> it worked like once, you know. But you're trying to train them to have an attitude that's moored to truth and keeps the love relationship. It's a strange principle, but that is what John is saying in this final letter. So the letter is important for a lot of reasons. It's applicable today, like so much of Scripture. You don't have to make the Bible relevant. The Bible is relevant. You just have to read it and study it a little bit. But our activities show more about who we are, about what we believe. Listen to um, G. Campbell Morgan. This brief letter has an important message for the church in our day. First, we're not really abiding in the truth if we fail to demonstrate love for the brethren in physical and financial ways. We may know the truth intellectually without knowing it experientially. You know, this is a hard one for people, and especially if you're on the receiving end. Um, when COVID hit, we set up an agreement with about four people in the church, and we set aside some money, and we said, we don't want anybody in, in Stonebridge who needs money or can't make a payment or lost a job due to COVID. We don't want you to worry. We don't want you to worry. That's silly. The hard part is getting over the, quote, embarrassment to come ask for help. We can't read people's minds. But that offer still stands. It still stands. Because we wouldn't be the body of Christ if we didn't help one another physically or financially. That's what we're supposed to do. Frankly, that's easy to do. It's easy to do. It might be hard for you to swallow your pride, but that's a different issue. If you need help, it's there. He continues, second, our activities reveal the true attitudes we can see in our attitude is if it's loving or selfish not by examining our emotions but by examining our activities do our actions demonstrate love or selfishness this is a very practical and helpful test that we 
should use on ourselves regularly. And I've shared with you my own struggles about do I ever have a pure motive in anything I do in life? Am I doing it because, you know, God wants me to do it. It's a favor. I'll get, somebody will think well of me because I do something. Stop! One of my friends who's sitting in the far right over there, I won't call out his name, but he, he often corrects me. He goes, Michael, you, you can do good works. It's okay. Don't, don't, work, don't analyze them so hard. Well, I do because I have a guilty, strict conscience. And I go, why did I really do that? Why did I really help that person? My wife says, get over it. Just do it. <laughs> Sending out a perfect compliment for each other. because she, she, she says, I have a lot of permutas. I said, I've never had one. She goes, well, there we are. And it still works, 41 years in counting, so it's, it's all good. Um, these two little letters are a, a, a big bridge on what we're going to do with Jude and then this wonderful text called Revelation, no S, by the way, Revelation, the next two weeks. But being as this is Memorial Day weekend, I thought it was more than fitting to uh, commemorate the Lord's table. And I want to do this in a little different way. Um, in a few minutes, we'll say goodbye to our live stream audience, but you can stay with us for now. Um, some of you perhaps know that uh, before the end of the American Civil War, uh, something had started a foot called Dedication Day, or excuse me, Decoration Day. And it's debated whether it was in about 1865 or so forth. 1868 had become somewhat official. And uh, this first image, of course, is just a shot of Arlington Cemetery, and then the right one's the wider shot of some of the headstones there. And typically they're decorated with flags for Memorial Day, or sometimes they use the, the, the red uh, flowers if they can get them. Um, it's a whole other story. But in 1868, there was a man named General John Logan. And uh, that, that picture on the next one is a place called Logan's Circle. If you've been to Washington, D.C., you may well in DuPont Square, whatever. All these places have names for reasons. It wasn't like a Scrabble board and they just came up with a name. Uh, this is General Logan's circle. And uh, you can see in the middle there's a guy on a horse. The next picture, he's, he's on the statue riding a horse. Uh, General John Logan proclaimed Memorial Day, an official holiday, uh, excuse me, official uh, celebration, that all graves of all soldiers would have flowers put on their graves. There were about 620 plus thousand men, mostly men, lost during the Civil War. At that time, the largest we'd had as, as a nation, obviously. And so Logan dubbed it Decoration Day, and it later will take on the traction of Memorial Day. There's some debate about why they picked it. That probably the most uh, common sense was that it wasn't celebrating a winner or a loss, because there was no winner in the Civil War. Brothers are fighting brothers. There was no winner the horrible war. And so they didn't want to have a celebration for who won the war, so they spaced it. And there's some argument that the flowers came into bloom later in the year, so they put it on the last Monday of May. It was 100 years later, however, in June 1968, when Congress passed the Uniform Holidays Bill. And what that means for the rest of us is when the holiday fell on a Wednesday, we're going to scoot it back to a Monday or to a Friday so you get a bona fide three or four day weekend. It was just a, a, a common sense thing because any of you who own companies or work for a living know that if you take a day off in the middle, it messes everything up. So let's scoot it. So that's what they did in 1968. And then it became the last day of, uh, of May, last Monday of May. And then, of course, it became a federalized holiday 
1971. Now, if we go back to John Logan for just a minute, um, they named that, that circle after him because he's the one who came up with the idea for this being an official holiday, official dedication day, an official day to commemorate. What does a memorial do? It causes you to remember something. I got online last night and looked up in Tennessee, and I was trying to find a way to measure, like, are there bona fide federal memorials, state memorials? I couldn't come up with an easy answer after too much wasted time, but there's over 5,261 recognized memorials in Tennessee alone. 5,261. Now, some of those might be a church where some incident happened, but the point is, people said, this was an important event, let's make a memorial. We were driving back from Georgia a couple weeks ago, and we came across the Trail of Tears. I've heard that phrase my whole life growing up as a kid in American history. I stopped and read the plaque and took a picture of the Trail of Tears. Do you know what the Trail of Tears is about? No, because we don't teach history anymore. That's another problem. Anyway, a memorial commemorates because we forget. Because we forget, we need to be reminded. So we have these great memorials. And when you go to Washington, D.C., uh, and you should. First, it's God's will for you to go to Israel. Second or third, maybe D.C. But if you go to D.C., you need to do the top ten. And the top ten are hard to decide what you're going to do. But Arlington's one you should do. You can spend a day at Arlington and never be bored. Well, blow your mind. Get the little docent tour. You'll spend a day there, and you will weep, and you will laugh, and you will see head to And, oh, by the way, there's one civilian He's buried here. I'm not going to tell you who. And you go, wow, how'd that happen? There's a whole story about how oh, the civilian was buried there. On and on and on it goes. Most people don't love history because we had bad history teachers. Sorry for your history teacher. Um, remember, remember, remember. You seen the Iwo Jima Monument? You seen the Eternal Flame? You seen the Lincoln Memorial? Remember. Why were we tearing down statues that we did or didn't know if they might have had slaves? Because we didn't know. And memorials will tell the story. That's why they're important. How much more than the next two memorials? So the first one is called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And how many of y'all have been to Israel? Real high. About 15% maybe. Um, we will take you to the Holy Sepulchre sometimes. Um, that picture is... is um, it's like, how do you take a picture of Washington, D.C.? Well, how do you take a picture? Well, I can't show you a whole bunch of them. I'll just show you one. That's inside, and this had to do with Nat Geo went in there, and they cleaned up the tomb, and they uncovered the tomb, and they, you know, they found a book of matches. No, I'm not kidding. They didn't find anything. They just kind of cleaned it up and put it back together, but it was one of the few times it's been touched in decades. And uh, when you go to the square at the sepulcher, it can be thousands of people pressing in to see there. You'll see Coptics. You'll see Catholics. You'll see evangelicals, you'll see uh, Nigerians love to come to Israel, and you'll see this group of Nigerians, you'll see Koreans, a lot of Asians love to go to Israel, and you'll see just a wonderful representation of the whole, every nation, race, tongue, tribe, uh, going into this place, and it's pretty miserable when you go inside. But the sepulcher, uh, as I was taught, intellectually, it will, it will satisfy the requirements of the Bible in your mind but the next picture is Gordon's Calvary or the Garden Tomb, and this will satisfy the affections of your heart. Your heart will tell you Gordon's Calvary or the Garden Tomb. Your head will tell you the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. But because of what goes on in each place, it's sort of a... And you already know where I'm going with this. It doesn't matter. 
It doesn't matter if he was crucified at the sepulcher, laid on the stone. That was, I, I, can, I can tell you this. That was not the rock he was laid on. I can tell you this for sure. Now, was he crucified and could he have been buried there? Very possibly. This one is more romantic. And this one has got tendencies or rather connections with Joseph of Arimathea because it has not only a vineyard uh, remain, it's got a big wine cellar not like the one you have in your home. This is the vat in the ground. Because they pressed the grapes and it went into gravel. And they have just uncovered it in recent years. This guy was wealthy. And this was a stone tomb which no one yet had been buried. So the, the, what you're seeing, the, the opening of the hole, that's all obviously been put there you know, many, many years ago. That's not antiquity. That's keeping it from eroding and falling down. But people go there and, and the Brits run this thing. And um, they have a wonderful relationship with Israel, and they have all the plants and the little soft music and sprinklers. So it's, it's, a, very, it's a very lovely place. You go and you don't want to leave the garden tomb. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre, you can't wait to get out of. You go in, and the claustrophobia and the smell and all the incense and all the iconography and all the gaudy gold and brass and nickel and all the people and people laying on the ground crying. And it's, it's just kind of a, it's such a different experience to go in those two rooms. And so people like this one for obvious reasons. Doesn't matter. Why? He's not there. He's not there. He gave us a memorial, though. And that memorial is completely transportable around the globe. A solid and a liquid. In this case, representing the body and blood of Jesus. If you've not been around churches much or recently or even thought about this, um, the reason we commemorate the body and blood of Jesus Christ is because he said to. They're called an ordinance. There are two of them. Baptize and remember the Lord's table. And churches debate. Some of us had a mass, mass. I grew up in Catholic, had mass every day. We had the Lord's Supper. Uh, brethren churches I attended had one every Sunday. Uh, evangelical churches, first Sunday of the month. I mean, you know, you can debate this till the cows come home. The bottom line is, at the end of the day, it says, as often as you eat this, when you do this. So we piece these things together, and it seems as though they did it frequently. That's the point. And so we commemorate the Lord's table to remember. That's the memorial. So I'm going to give you some instructions on what we're going to do. I'm going to say goodbye to our, our live stream friends who've watched us thus far because we'll be uh, participating in the Lord's Elements today. So thank you all for being part of our service today. Um, but what we have now, because uh, during COVID, uh, we had some people that were very helpful and bought these little uh, containers that has the, the bread in one side and the juice. And there are five stations. There's one to my far right, one two on each side here, and two in the back. So no waiting in line five. Um, so what we want you to do, I'm going to pray here for a moment. You can just get up as a family. If you're single, just go by yourself. Just grab that little element and go over in a corner and pray. Um, take a moment, reflect. And before you do this, I often read the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter um, uh, 10 and 11. And just let me refer to one verse there, or a couple of verses real quickly. Because I, I love the way uh, Paul writes this. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. And the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he gave thanks, he broke it. Stop right there. He knew he was going to die. He breaks the bread and he gives thanks. 
And that word give thanks in Greek is eucharistes, where some churches call it the Holy Eucharist. It means to give thanks in that text. He gave thanks, and then he said, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup also and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that's another one of those verses we, we brush over. When we eat this bread, commemorating his broken body in our place on our behalf, when we drink the juice, commemorating the blood shed to cover our sins that the author of Hebrew writes extensively about, we're remembering that. But Paul says you're proclaiming his death. Not his life. You're proclaiming his death until he comes. Why is he telling us to do that? Because we forget. And we need a memorial to remember that he died for you and me. May it never become rote. May it never become boring. This is one reason I don't like to do it every week as much as that can be attractive. Because it needs time to talk about why. Otherwise, it's just a little ritual we do. He loves you. He died in your place, on your behalf, instead of you. He's the only one that can pay for your sin. He's the only one that can solve a guilty conscience. He's the only one that can welcome you into an eternal kingdom, an eternal relationship. You'll become heir of a kingdom you could never earn, you could not be born into, and he did that for you. In your place, on your behalf, instead of you. If you don't know who Jesus Christ is, this is the greatest transaction ever offered to any person. You know, work your way, you know, pray your way, you know, give your way, you know, manipulate your way. You put your trust in Jesus Christ to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. He lived, he died, he was buried to confirm his death. He comes back from the dead. He proved he had power over death. And then he says, any and all who put their faith in me, any and all who trust in Christ and Christ alone are offered a free gift called eternal life. If you don't know that you know that you know who this Jesus is, that's the most important thing you'll ever wrestle with. And you don't need to wrestle. You just need to trust him. You just need to trust him. He'll carry you. He'll give you meaning in life. He'll give you purpose in life. You'll learn life and all about me. And you'll find a joy that you never found apart from him. That one you have to take by faith. Doesn't mean life will be easy, but life will have purpose. Doesn't mean life's going to be rosy and you're going to get wealthy and successful, but it means you'll have him as you go through all the hell that you and I will go through in this life. 